You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Today we're looking at something that, that might be near and dear to your heart. It might be something that you grew up in church and you thought that there were things that you had to do to be a Christian, that there is requirements above, you know, what God has put on your heart, above believing and having faith in Jesus Christ. So there are these extra things. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you weren't a Christian. Maybe uh, you've never, you're not a Christian now, but you thought that being a Christian meant you did this and that and, and these things. And this is something that we're looking at. Uh, as we get to Acts chapter 15, which is what we're looking at, it kind of addresses this very topic. Uh, you guys were asked around to, to go around the room and to write things uh, on the on a box that were extra things that you were thought was a requirement that you were taught that maybe you believed maybe you just heard to be a good Christian uh, you got judge others um, that we we have to no tattoos you have to be perfect always you have to be good um, you have to love everyone that you have to have to dress your best no shorts um, someone made seventy times seven. Oh, that's probably forgiving, or they're just someone's working on their math algebra right now. They're like, I need a piece of paper. Um, Nothing over your Bible. Um, Perfect all the time. You know, so you have these ideas that you had to to do, that there's these requirements. I I had those growing up in church. Um, Some of them, as I look back, there's a long list of them, right? Um, But there's some that are just silly. Um, I got three that I thought about when I was little. Uh, One was, I was taught in Sunday school, I don't remember the, the lesson or who told us, but they said, you can't put anything above the Word of God. Makes sense, right? Yeah, that God's Word is the most important in our life. We're supposed to follow that. I didn't quite get it as a little kid, and I thought, like, you weren't allowed to put anything on top of your Bible. And so I went home, and there's the Bible on our piano, and then some, like, uh, piano books. And I told my parents, like, you guys are sinners. And, like, it was awful. They had something on top of the Bible. And so I made sure, went around the house, nothing was on top of anyone's Bible. Uh, Made sure that in my room, my Bible was always on top of a pile of anything. It collected dust, right, because I, I wouldn't read it. I didn't comprehend that I need to put that in my life. I just knew it had to be on top. So there's one thing that I thought to be a good Christian, you had to do that. Um, I also, there's that song, This Little Light of Mine. If you, if you grew up in church, you know that song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. And there's a verse, uh, second or third verse, don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Well, I was convinced uh, I didn't get to see the words. I was just listening in Sunday school class, and I was certain it was don't let Santa it out. And which made a lot more sense to me, because that jolly old man is going to sneak in my house, give presents, and he wants it dark so I don't see him, and he's going to sneak in and blow out my candle. And so I was convinced, as a little kid, that Santa's going to come blow it out, and then I'm not going to go to heaven, all right, thanks to Santa. And so you had to, and I didn't even have a candle. I don't know where that knew, I just knew Christmas Eve, I got to watch out and not let Santa blow this thing out. And so that was one. And then, so that was in early childhood, you know, up to 15 or 16. And, um, but then there's one that went into our marriage. Sarah and I got married, and uh, I was con- told um, by, by someone influential in my life that a debit card is the mark of the devil, 
all right? And so that they said, I don't know, they might have just not wanted me to get one or they were just trying to, to give me a, a story, but that it was the mark of the devil because the mark of the beast was that then the government would be able to track you and they could track me through my debit card and that they'd be on to me and I couldn't get a debit card because I'd be given in to the mark of the beast. And so I was convinced, you know, you can't have debit cards. For some reason in my mind, you could have a credit card, which... That doesn't make much sense, but you, you couldn't have a debit card, otherwise I'm giving in to Satan and his minions, right? And so Sarah and I got married, go on our honeymoon, come back, we're talking about banking, I don't know how this didn't come up in premarital counseling, or uh, even just this issue has come up in my own counseling for many, many years later, but um, I said, hey, uh, you know, she, she pulled out a debit card, I was like, what is that? She said, it's a debit card. I said, no, it's the mark of the devil. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I told her, hey, you, are, you have the mark of the beast in your wallet. And she said, show me in scripture where that is. And she got me on that one. And, and, and I was like, I, I don't know. It, I'm not that great at the scripture thing, but trust me, it's in there. It talks about debit cards. And we had a long conversation, and I came away from that conversation um, fully enlightened and realizing that my wife is part of the mark of the beast. And um, she's, she's going down. And so um, it was sad, but we, we were able to come to that conclusion. Over the years, I came to realize that wasn't the mark of the beast, that uh, you can't have a debit card and, and not be part of Satan's minions, and that my wife was correct in that argument. Um, but there are these ideas that are just, some of them are absurd, right? There are these ideas that we connect with Christianity well beyond the message of Jesus Christ, there's these ideas that maybe the church you grew up in, you had to ha read KGV, that King James is the only version, that maybe you had to dress a certain way, that you had to act a certain way, that you had to be there every single time it's open uh, if you were to be a good Christian, if you were to be saved, if it's open on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, after school programs, VBS, you had to be at everything, that there's these ideas of all these extra things put on the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ. And so that is what we're looking at. This, this isn't a new concept. This was the case back in Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it there. We have the church in Antioch, the church that Paul and Barnabas had been sent out on that missionary journey. They went on this missionary journey and they began to preach to the Gentiles. And they went on this journey and they preached to Jews and Gentiles, but many Gentiles were coming to accept the Lord. They had great stories about the Holy Spirit being alive and active, about being able to perform miracles and wonders in these towns and these cities of the Gentiles coming and accepting Christ, about them receiving the Holy Spirit, about them being baptized. And word has gotten to the church in Jerusalem. And not everyone in Jerusalem is excited about this. Jerusalem is the, the hub of the, the mothership of Christianity where it was starting, and much of that was of Jewish people that had converted to Christianity. And they hear about the Gentiles that are coming to accept Christ. And so they send a message, they send word from Jerusalem down to the church in Antioch that says the Gentiles need to be circumcised. And so this is where we pick up on the story in chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. To be fully fair, we've got to kind of look at both sides of this argument. The, the believers coming from Jerusalem, these people steeped in Jewish background and Jewish history, see that you must be circumcised. 
That basically what they're saying, it's not just the surgical procedure, but they're saying you must be a Jew. You must be part of this 2,000-year history. You must be part of the suffering and the excitement that we've all been part of. And we've been looking for this Messiah, and how could you know the Messiah? How could you fully appreciate who Jesus is if you don't grasp our history and our past? And so they're not just talking about a surgical procedure. Uh, they're talking about so much more that if you wanted to convert to Judaism, if a Gentile was to convert, they would first have to study the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have to be well-versed in this knowledge in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, and they would have to understand that. They would have to know the history, all this background. Then, and only then, could they be circumcised and become part of the Jewish faith. And then, as a Christian, to be baptized. And so they're saying, basically, not just they need to have this surgical procedure, is that they need to do this amazing thing to, to learn all the Hebrew scriptures, to go back in history, to be part of us, to, to be one with us. They're basically saying that there's a standard the Gentiles aren't going to be able to meet. They're finding an excuse to not include the Gentiles into the family of God. And so they've sent this message down to the church in Antioch who's been preaching and teaching to the Gentiles, who's been sending out missionary journeys to the Gentiles. And the word gets to them. Verse 2 says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they sent them to go to the, the central hub to Jerusalem to find out. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the laws of Moses. Even their statement is unrealistic. These Christians, the, the Pharisees that have converted to Christianity, that see Jesus as the answer, Jesus as the Messiah, that see Jesus as forgiveness. Jesus is the one that has set us free from our sins, from this path of having to have sacrifice after sacrifice, set us free from the law of Moses. Now they're saying the Gentiles have to follow this, something that they don't even have to do. And so they set this, in, this incredible standard that the Gentiles would never be able to meet. They're basically saying the Gentiles aren't going to be Christians. They're not, they aren't going to be one of us. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Theologians and historians call this the, the first Jerusalem council. And, and it was believed that this meeting of, of great leaders and of, of great wisdom and great debate probably took several days. Luke is describing this entire council in just this one little chapter in just a few verses. And so he summarizes much of what was said. And, and he glosses over many of the debates and these two days of arguments and, and the debates. And he gets to a point where he shares what Peter says. And I don't think he shares what Peter says simply because it's Peter. Because I have a feeling Peter's probably been talking along throughout this entire council. But he gets to the point, Luke is making sure we know, this isn't about man's views. For the Gentiles, man's views against the Gentiles. We get to this point where he shares what Peter says is God's view. That's the most important. That when there's these debates and these philosophies and you got man arguing against man and, and there's all these decisions and, and they're sharing these opinions, those opinions don't matter 
What matters is what God's opinion matters. And so it's something I think we could all take, take to heart. As we see these debates in our society and arguments in our society, where is God's view? Not which is the most logical argument by mankind, but what is God's view in this argument? So we pick up in verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. His wording here is specific because the idea of circumcision was an outward expression of being purified for God. Peter is saying the Holy Spirit came and purified them in their heart. It's not about circumcision. It's not about any extra thing that they could do or thing that they could, that they could earn their way. It was about God purifying them. He goes on, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. I love even how he words this. That maybe if you and I were to do this argument, we would say that we're saved and so are they. And that they're saved just like us. But I love how he kind of twists it and he says that we're saved just like them. That the Holy Spirit has come to them, that they have been saved, that we know that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in them, that they've been baptized, that they are accepted and they're part of Jesus Christ's family. And we are just like them. I love how he even words that just to bring it about that the Gentiles are part of this family. So verse 12 continues, The whole assembly became silent. As they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. I'm sure Paul and Barnabas have been part of these arguments for the past several days. But as I said, now the focus is on what God is saying. And so Peter shares about God's vision from several chapters ago that, that Peter was to go to the Gentiles and the Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit. And then Paul and Barnabas tell about this missionary journey that they went on for years. And it tells them about what happened and tells them about the wonders and the signs and the miracles. Tells them about the Holy Spirit coming down and filling the people. Tells them about the baptisms. Tells them about the exciting times about these new churches that are growing and passionate and excited about Jesus Christ. And so they all sit in silence as they're in awe of this, of what God has said, of what God is doing. So Peter shares about what God's opinion. Paul and Barnabas shares about God's action. And then James speaks up. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And James, uh, when Jesus was walking on earth, he didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't believe in him, but after Jesus' death and resurrection, James began to believe and James started in, this, in the church in Jerusalem and kind of worked his way up into leadership until what Paul would later call him a pillar of the church, that he was the leader of the church. And so they've had this council meeting, they've had it for several days, and people have shared their opinions, their debates now, they're seeing what God is saying, and James is kind of putting an end to this, a cap to it. As a leader of the church, he's saying, okay, here's our stance. Here's what we believe. Here's what I'm gathering from this council. This isn't just James's opinion. This is basically he's summing up, okay, here is what our verdict is from this debate. 
And he says, when they, the text says, verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, which is another name for Peter, had described to us how God first intervened to choose people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. James is saying, Peter shared that this was God's view. Paul and Barnabas shared that this is God's actions on their trip. And now we're even going back to the book of Amos, to the Old Testament, to the scriptures that you Pharisees would believe, to the scriptures that you Pharisees have held on to. And even that, God was saying, the Gentiles will believe. The Gentiles are part of us. And then he says, and it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Saying that we should not add anything extra that they have to do to find salvation. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to do this or that. They don't have to dress a certain way. They don't have to act a certain way to receive salvation. They don't have to be circumcised to receive salvation. For, for our times, they don't have to read King James to, re- to receive salvation. They don't have to wear a dress to church. They don't have to wear a suit to church. They don't have to do these things to receive salvation. And so James kind of sums up what the council decides. And then he goes on. And he gives a little extra information. Because this debate was about salvation... And about the grace of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of, Jesus, of grace. But then to take that and to go to all these cities, to go to all these towns, there's a, an issue of fellowship between these Gentiles and Jews. That Christianity is going to both. And these two groups that have been so far apart, these two groups that have lived in so differently, how are they going to come together to be one? How are you going to find unity? And so he shares, instead... We should write, talking about the the church in Antioch. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. He's saying that there's Jews in every town. Some of these Jews have come to accept Jesus Christ. Some of them haven't. But we have these customs that the Gentiles would do that are greatly offensive to the Jews. And how are you going to mix together to love one another, to find in this fellowship? And so he shares that there's some things that the Gentiles used to do that maybe you should avoid. These aren't requirements for salvation. These are suggestions for fellowship. These are so that you would be able to go to where it says the the word of God has been preached in every synagogue and every town, that you would go and not offend the Jews that are there, that you would avoid uh, the food sacrificed to idols, that in these pagan temples they would have these great feasts and they would eat the food and the Gentiles, even the Gentile Christians, wouldn't see anything wrong with eating it because the Gentile Christians know it was sacrificed to something that's not even a real God. There's only one true God, and so this food, there's nothing special about that food. But to the Jews, it would be greatly offensive. 
To eat this food would be greatly offensive. So he says, don't do that. To avoid sexual immorality, which, which is an obvious for, for either culture, but the, many believe that what James is saying here with the sexual immorality is that there was certain uh, marriage customs that the Jews observed. And he's saying to the Gentiles, hey, respect these customs. Follow these ways. Don't, don't make fun of them. Don't push them to, to be tempted to avoid those. Respect these customs because these are important to the culture. That there's even dietary things that he's saying to the Gentiles, hey, I know you can eat these things, but why don't you avoid it for the sake of fellowship? To avoid eating blood. Paul says a verse in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. That he's saying that we're going to tell the Gentile believers, hey, this isn't about your salvation. That's through grace from God. But here's some ideas on how to have this fellowship. This idea of eating blood, uh, two situations in my life, I've found myself in that situation. Uh, in Africa, we went on this mission trip and they killed a cow on the first day. And that was what we ate off for the entire two weeks. And they collected the blood as they killed the cow. And then they took that blood, mixed it with flour, cooked it over the fire. And that is what they poured on my meat when I went through the line. And they gave me a little bit of meat, a little bit of sadza, it's like mashed potatoes, and then drizzled this blood gravy on top of it. And so I went and sat around a campfire with everyone else, and I began to eat. I would have been greatly offensive to my host, to all the people, had I not eaten that gravy. Fast forward to another time I'm in Taiwan. Most of the time in Taiwan, there's many restaurants you would go, and you would be given a meal, and it would be a little set meal. And part of that meal would be a little piece of tofu that was dark red, maybe a burgundy. And it was tofu that was soaked in blood. And it was part of your meal, and you were encouraged to eat it. It was often sometimes floating around in our soup. And the people that I was with were greatly offended by that. And so I never did eat the blood tofu, because it wasn't worth offending the people. Either way, I don't feel my salvation was saved by not eating the blood tofu, and I don't believe my salvation was lost by eating the blood gravy, because my salvation is from God alone. These were things that were important for the fellowship of the Jews and the Gentiles to come together. And so they send this message to, to the church in Antioch and jump to verse 30. It says, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they, were gathered, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Paul and Barnabas come back and they bring Judas and Silas to be able to confirm that, hey, yeah, this is what the council said. You guys have received Jesus Christ. You guys have received the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to do this list of things. You don't have to, to do the list that you have written around this room on the boxes. That what's important is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We have salvation. Salvation means to be, to be freed, to be freed from our sins, to be freed from our pain, to be freed and delivered from hell. 
And we have this salvation because of grace, not because of anything that we could do. With this grace, this unmerited favor from God, something that we do not deserve, and it says in there, so that we could not brag that it was of something we did. It is simply of God. Because if it was something that we did, that if we were good enough, if we did enough good intentions, if we, if we could do this well enough, then God would be obligated to forgive us. And God's not obligated to do anything. He's God. He chooses to give us grace. He chooses to give us salvation. He chooses to set us free. And so all this because if we have faith in Jesus Christ. If we have faith that he died and rose again, if we have faith that he was a sacrifice for us, then we have this free gift of grace, this gift of salvation, that there is nothing else that is required. You are not required to be circumcised or uncircumcised. You're not required to do this list of things, those things that maybe you grew up with or the things that maybe you're holding on to now. These extra burdens, that's not what gets us into heaven. It's God's grace. And his death on the cross and his resurrection, which already happened, we have salvation. We often look at salvation as just something of the future, right? That we're going to have salvation, we're going to have eternity in heaven, which is awesome. It's something we can't even comprehend, this eternity that, that's ongoing. Or we look at salvation or, as something covering our past, all the past sins, the past hurts we've done, the past things. But salvation is not only for the future and the past, but for the present, we're freed from our present. We're freed from today. That we have this grace, we have this forgiveness and salvation that we are set free. And so we write these things on a box that, that maybe you wrote from things from childhood, but there's things that society has written on your heart right now. There's things that Satan has put and burdens that he's put on you that we are set free from. That it's not about this list of things that we had on these boxes or about the pain or the mistakes we've made or about the abuse that we've endured or the abuse that we've caused or the addictions that we've worked through or all these things that keep coming back, these pains and scars, all these things that are extra, that are keeping us from God's grace, that are keeping us from salvation. We have these long lists of things and none of those can overpower the amazing love of God. God's love is bigger than anything we could have written on these boxes. God's love is bigger than anything that you're struggling with. It, God's love is bigger than anything that's been a debate in your mind. There are people I know in this room that have struggled, that are struggling with God's grace. I don't understand why God would forgive me. He knows all that I've done. I don't deserve it. Or maybe that I don't have a strong enough faith, or I'm not, I'm not strong enough, or I'm not, uh, I don't have enough knowledge, I don't pray enough, that there's all these things that aren't enough. But the amazing message is God's love is enough. God's grace is enough. And I want to encourage you that if this is where your heart is, know that He is enough. That if you're holding on to the things from the past that you thought were what you needed to do to be a good Christian, or if you're holding on to the pain and the struggles and the scars, they're telling you you're not a good Christian. It's not about you. It's about God. So embrace his love. Embrace his salvation. Embrace his grace. If you'll stand with me and pray. God, we just come to you right now, and I just pray, Lord, that we can give our life over to you. 
and that we can fully embrace the salvation that is from you. God, that we can fully embrace this unmerited grace, something we don't deserve, but you give us anyways. And God, if we are thinking that we're not good enough, if we don't believe enough, if we don't have faith enough, if we're not strong enough, if we don't have enough knowledge, God, let us let go of all those enoughs and realize that your love is enough. Your love is your grace. And that is more than enough. God, we can't earn it. We can't get there from logic. We can only get to salvation through you. And I thank you for the grace you've given each one of us. God, we lift this up in your name.